Well, as we begin our time this morning, would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for this chance once again to open your word together. We certainly recognize our need and our desire is to know you more. And so we would ask that you would attend to our time, open our minds and our hearts to do exactly what we have just sang that we would receive your word as it is, your word, not the words of men, but the words of God. And so we praise you for this, ask your blessing upon it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's our privilege once again to open the Bible together, so I'll ask you to take your scriptures and open them with me to Romans chapter 11. Last week we were off as Dr. Lance Roberts was here with us preaching. It was a great time to have him with us and for some of you to get the opportunity to interact with him both here at church and at the picnic. And so we are returning this morning to Romans chapter 11. And what a great text this is for us as we have been studying over the last several months. How informative it is for our own understanding as to how our great God is using us in the redemption of His chosen people, specifically the Jews. How we as non-Jews, as Christians, are being used by God in His redemptive plan in the bringing back of His own chosen people, the Jews. If you remember from our time a few weeks ago, we were... I trust, riveted by the reality that in God's wisdom, the rejection of the gospel by the Jews, as we see it at large today, there are Jews who are getting saved, but the majority has rejected the gospel. And that rejection by them was an avenue through which the gospel has come to us, the non-Jews. In God's wisdom, in God's way of orchestrating His plan of redemption for us, it was through the rejection of the gospel by the Jews. It's really an overwhelming truth to realize that you and I as Gentiles, once outside of the kingdom of God, a people who were not the people of God. But now, through faith in Jesus Christ, that was facilitated to our hearing by and through the rejection of God's people, we have been brought into the family of God as His own people. Now that alone is a wonderful truth, and yet that alone can be troubling for many confusing to many that we are as Gentile Christians now the people of God. That truth alone should level any vestige of pride that might well up in us. It should crush any lingering sense in our flesh that we in some kind of way were worthy of salvation. That news that God has used by way of His own people rejecting the gospel so that the gospel should come to us, that news, that reality, that understanding should demolish in us whatever sense we may have as to our own sense of finding God through our own intelligence. 
It should end any idea that we are saved because we are somehow better than the Jew. We did not find God. We were not worthy to be saved. Our salvation had nothing to do with us. It was and is all by the mercy and grace of God to bring us who were outside spiritually, spiritually inside the kingdom so that we might bear fruit for Him. This is the emphasis that Paul is making here in the final section of Romans chapter 11. And I want to do something this morning that I don't normally do. I have been talking with my wife about this recently this week as I'm studying this because normally I don't cover a grand section of any part of Scripture. I was watching a video this week of a mentor, a great man of God, Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, preaching. And he was preaching the book of Romans in seminary chapel at my, the seminary that I went to in California. And he went through the entire book of Romans in 40 minutes. I was shocked. <laughs> well, I'm going to do something this morning that will shock you just as well. Because I want to cover this final section of Romans in one message. Now, if you were with us last over the last two weeks, you know I ended in verse 15 of Romans chapter 11. And if you're a thinking person, which all of you are, you say, wait a minute, that's over 16 verses you're going to cover in our time this morning. Let me get my lunch out because we're going to be here a while. That's what you're saying to yourself. But I can assure you that's not the case, and I think there's great reason why we can cover it like that, even though we could spend time over the next months delving into minute details here, but I want to cover it in a different way. Because as Gentile believers, when we are thinking of the Jew, and when we are thinking of the fact that they are primarily in our head, a nation of Jewish people, like we think of today, the national reality of the Jews, this nation of Jews, and we think of them rejecting the only true Messiah. We, we have to be very careful not to let our thinking go to the place where we become arrogant in our own salvation. Arrogant as to the reality that, hey, look at me, God saved me. Too bad for you, you small, little-minded people. As if it was something we accomplished, as if it was something that we did, and those poor little Jewish people, if they would just wake up and use their common sense like I did, then they too would be, a, would be in the kingdom of God. So we cannot let our internal attitude go there. And I say... I say internal attitude because none of us would readily admit that in our attitude at times we think of our salvation in those terms. None of us would raise our hand if I said, how many of you think like that? I would surely say, nobody in this room would, think like, would say they're thinking like that. But the fact is that there are times when we look at people and we look at those who don't know Christ and we think about even the Jewish people and say, oh gee, I wish they would be like me and do like I did. That we just happen to wake up one day and make the right choice. And if the Jew would do that, then they would be just like us. 
We need to determine right now, right here, as Christians, as people in the world, as people who walk around among a world of non-believers, we need to not have that attitude. Because that is the farthest thing from the truth. And when we understand the reality about our own salvation, then we will begin to have the correct view of the future of God's chosen people, Israel. And the proper perspective on how we are to live, as we'll begin to see in chapter 12. So this is what the Apostle Paul is confronting in this section of chapter 11. The potential arrogance concerning our salvation. The potential for us as Gentile believers to be arrogant, to be conceited, to be wise in our own estimation as to our own salvation, particularly in connection with the Jew. And as we look at them who continue to reject this way and the attitude that's so easy to come into us who are saved to stand back and say, oh, like many say today in a theological realm, we are now the new Israel. Paul says that's an arrogant thought, that's a conceited thought, that in fact is an unwise thought. I don't know how many of you have ever heard of the terminology replacement theology. Maybe you've picked up a book, maybe you've picked up a commentary, maybe you've read through some theological truths and you've heard of the term replacement theology. Replacement theology has a lot of nuances, but in a nutshell it's that idea that the church is now Israel. That we are the new Israel. That Israel, God's done, God's finished in totality and in finality with Israel as a nation, with Israel as a people, that we all are now part of the church. And when someone gets saved, it's just all part of the church. And now we're the new Israel. We're the spiritual Israel. We are the new Israel. Well, I'll just say to you in my own vernacular and putting words in the mouth of Paul, that's a bunch of hogwash. It's a bunch of hogwash. And so this is what Paul is confronting in Romans chapter 11. And so with that as a backdrop, I want to just have you follow along as I read this section for us. Because I think it's, it's pretty self-explanatory when you just read it and follow the thinking of the Apostle Paul. Notice what he says. And I'll, I'll just begin in verse 15 where we left off last time together. For if their rejection be the reconciliation of the world, what will acceptance be but life from the dead? And if the first piece be holy, the lump is also. And if the root be holy, the branches are also. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them, and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree then do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, you need to remember that it's not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. And so you will say then, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Well, you're quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. So don't be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Behold then the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness. 
if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. Why? Because God is able to graft them in again. Because if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more shall these who are the natural be grafted into their own olive tree? Now, I don't want you, brethren, to be uninformed about this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And thus, all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Because the gift and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, in order that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience, that he might show mercy to all. Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments, unfathomable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became His counselor? Or who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Now, I suppose if we were smart, we would just close our Bibles and thank Paul for preaching that message to us and just revel in it. But we're here in order to delve into it a bit. And it's clear from the text that Paul is addressing for us the potential of spiritual pride that can raise its ugly head in us who are saved. There is the reality that you and I, in our salvation and in the joy of knowing our salvation, can become spiritually prideful and convince ourselves in many ways that we're not spiritually prideful as we compare ourselves to others who have yet to hear and embrace the truth of the gospel. Sometimes we can say in a kind of a tongue-in-cheek way under our breath, fine, you don't want to believe the gospel, then proceed to hell. That's arrogant. We, that, that's a statement that would say in our minds and hearts, I figured it out, why couldn't you figure it out? And Paul here is specifically addressing our understanding of the Jews and the future implication of them in the kingdom of God. But I also believe there are wider implicational truths here that we cannot just pass by. And the wider implication of the truth is the fact that spiritual pride in our salvation is prevalent oftentimes when we compare ourselves to others in general. It's easy for us 
And it's easy for the flesh to work, to lead us in believing that we were saved because we're worthy of it, or we were saved because we're smarter than other people, or we were saved because there's something in me that God just happened to like more than He liked in others. And if others just would have that, if others would have what I have, then they too would be like me, they would be saved. And that kind of mentality leads down the road of what I mentioned earlier. That kind of mentality gets you thinking on this idea of replacement theology. That somehow we Gentiles are now the new Israel. That we are somehow in the church that Israel as a people have been totally and with finality rejected by God. And God has chosen us because we were in some way superior to them. But that couldn't be farther from the truth, as we can see here in Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, verse 18. Don't be arrogant toward the branches. That's you Gentile believers. Don't be arrogant towards the Jews. Don't be arrogant about God saving you and thinking you're better than the branches. Don't be arrogant about that. A few more verses down. Verse 20. Don't be conceited. Don't be conceited about where you stand. Don't think, hey, yeah, you're somebody. They, they, are, they rejected because of unbelief. You're standing in your faith. It was faith that saved you, and that faith was a gift of God. Don't be conceited about that, but fear God. Because you didn't get there on your own. God could remove you too. That's not saying that you're going to lose your salvation or that you could lose your salvation. What he's saying is the Jews stood in this fact and say, listen, we're God's people. We can never be set aside. And yet God said, I'm going to set you aside for a while. Listen, God doesn't allow all people to go to glory, only those who are chosen by Him. You could be set aside too, even though you think sometimes that you're okay. You may not be saved at all in your own heart and mind. Don't be conceited. Fear God. And then He says, down in verse 25, I don't want you to be uninformed about Israel, lest you be wise in your own estimation. Do you see the idea? Arrogance, arrogance, arrogance. How I look at myself, who I am in Christ, what am I compared to other people? There's this idea that there's this potential for arrogance. There is a potential problem. It's easy for us to become spiritually prideful about our salvation, especially when we think of the Jews. God wants none of that. And so God, through the Apostle Paul, addresses it. And it's being addressed through the use here of a metaphor. A metaphor that shows the wisdom of God in redemption. And the metaphor is this great picture of the olive tree. The olive tree. We know, if you've ever looked at the nation of Israel and the areas of Palestine and around that, it's prolific in that region. The olive tree is prolific in the Mediterranean. I was greatly joyed when I went to Israel several years ago to find out that even at breakfast they serve olives. I love olives. Olives are prolific in Israel. And so it's an easy picture for others to understand as Paul is writing this. This is what Paul grew up with. And the idea is that if one thing begins as a part of it, then it's easy to reinduce it, reintroduce it after it's been removed. If you remove part of the original, it's easy to put the part back on the original. That's the idea of the metaphor here. And it's unnatural for us as Gentiles to have been not part of it to be brought in. God is doing something here by saving us that is unnatural. 
Not unnatural to God. He's a Savior. But unnatural by means of, it doesn't make any sense. That God would allow His people to reject Him so that you and I who are outside could be brought in. That makes no sense. And yet that's what we see happening. And so you notice the basis of this whole argument is laid out for us in verse 16. If the first piece, you might have in italics letters there, the first piece of dough, because that's the idea when they were offering things to the Lord. The first piece was consecrated, set apart for God. If the first piece be holy, that's what holy means. It doesn't mean perfect. It means set apart to God. If the first piece be set apart to God, then obviously the rest is the same way. You can't take something that's holy from something that isn't set apart for God. And it's the idea of the whole thing. The lump is also that way. And if the root be holy, the branches are too. And Paul is referring here, not necessarily to just the metaphor, but he's referring to the first parts of Israel, where Israel began. Israel began with a promise to Abraham. And then Isaac and Jacob, whom God changed his name to Israel, the promise, the patriarchs, that's the the lump, that's the, the root. Well, if the roots set apart to God, then so are those that come from the root. That's the idea. So the entire point in the mind of the Apostle Paul is to ensure that we don't think that God is done with Israel. We don't get this idea in our minds just because we're saved, just because we're in the family of God, that man, God must be finally done with Israel. Right? In the first place, God set apart. The whole is set apart because the root is set apart. The whole is set apart because the, uh, the, the peace is set apart because the whole has been set apart. This is the picture of Israel. In other words, if the promise made to Abraham was and is irrevocable, as we see in verse 29, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. If that is holy to God, if that has been set apart to God, then also the ones whom are the children of Abraham, particularly the children of promise, who are the elect. So the implication is that we cannot write Israel off as if they are done, finished, as if God is done with them in finality. That can't happen. And so that's the premise in which Paul lays out here to us who are Gentiles. We are easily drawn away by our own spiritual pride at times. We know he's speaking to Gentiles because in verse 13 he says, I'm speaking to you who are Gentile. I mean, this is easy. So we have to keep that in our minds as we look at this section and remember God is not done with Israel. Keep that in your mind. God is not done with Israel. When people come to this whole idea of the issue of whether the church is the new Israel, this replacement theology idea, they always, they always turn to Romans 9 through 11 and try to figure out why and there's so many things they can't figure out because I think it's pretty clear God isn't done with Israel. So we have to keep that in our minds. And we are not a new Israel. So how do we keep that clear so that we do not become arrogant in our own salvation? That's what I'm trying to get to this morning. 
Let me give you a few points about this as we walk through this. First thing, in order to keep it clear so that we're not arrogant in our salvation, first, we have to remember who supports who. If we're going to get, have Israel in the right place in our minds in a theological way, in a, in a way of redemptive kingdom kind of way, we have to remember who supports who. That's what Paul says first. But if, verse 17, if some of the branches were broken off, and we know that he means rejected, some of the branches have rejected, been broken off, and you being a wild olive, that's us, the Gentiles, outside, not of the natural, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, the promises made to Abraham were partakers of that promise, were partakers in a spiritual sense of all that was promised to Abraham then don't be arrogant toward the branches. Why? Because you need to remember that it's not you who supports the root. It's the root that supports you. You see, in the wisdom of God, He set aside for a time, broken off that which is natural, the natural children of the root, spiritual children of the root, And by His grace, He grafted us, the unnatural, into the root. And because of that, we have received and partaken of the rich flow of blessing that was given to the root. We have received the grace of God. We have received the blessing, the spiritual blessings that God promised to pour out to His people through Abraham. We have received that, and we are continuing this day as Christians to receive all of that. So it is them, it is the root that supports us. It's not us that supports the root. So don't be arrogant against the original branches. You see, Paul's getting to that subtle danger, isn't he? The danger to be arrogant. We can easily tend to think that we are the new plan. We can easily think in our theological intellectualness that man okay I figured it out God I figured out where all this is going you set aside Israel and I'm the new Israel now I'm the one that God in finality is finished with the Jews that's how we contend to think that's how we theologically get to those places but that is clearly not the case and you can see that it's not us that supports the root It's the root that supports us. In fact, if God was to get rid of Israel, guess what? There would be no root. If there's no root, there's no fruit. There would be no root. Without the promise to Abraham, we would have no spiritual blessing. So there's no room for arrogance on our part. To say that God is fully finished with Israel is to be arrogant of our own salvation. Jesus gives an example of this kind of spiritual pride. Turn over to Luke chapter 18 just for a moment. Jesus gives an example of this spiritual pride, not necessarily in the Gentile, but the pride in the Jews. There was, verse 9, a parable that he told of one who trusted in himself, that he was righteous, that God loved him because of who he was. And he viewed others with contempt. And the two men go into the temple to pray, one Pharisee, the other tax gatherer. The Pharisee stands 
and is praying thus, notice, to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I'm not a swindler. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. <clears throat> I'm not even like this poor soul tax gatherer sitting here beside me. Not like that. I fast twice a week. I pay my tithes to all, of all that I get. But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Brothers and sisters, spiritual pride is a deadly thing. It's a deadly thing. And it shows up in all kinds of places, and it can show up in the church in this whole idea that the church is now the new Israel. That's just spiritual arrogance to say that God now has changed his plan, and we are the new Israel. So how do we avoid arrogance concerning our salvation? Well, first, we have to remind ourselves that we were grafted in by God's grace. It's the root that supports us. How do you look at the Jewish nation and the Jewish people? Know that God, they're still God's chosen people. And it's through them and because of them that we heard the gospel. And the promises came through them, and we are the beneficiaries of all the goodness of God through the promises of God made to Abraham because of that. The root supports us. We don't support the root. And then Paul gives a second way to avoid spiritual arrogance. And it's this. Verses 19 through 24. Remember that your salvation has nothing to do with your goodness. Remember... That your salvation has nothing to do with your goodness. Notice verse 19. You will say then, in light of the fact that I just told you that it's the root that supports you and you don't support the root, you're going to say, okay, yeah, that's right. Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. You see, God wasn't pleased with them. He chopped them off, got rid of them, threw them out so that something better would be brought in so that God would have something better they were cut off so that I could be grafted in get out of the way of the riffraff let the good come in you're quite right they were broken off for their unbelief they weren't broken off because God didn't like them they weren't broken off because God somehow removed them from his promise in totality and finality no they were broken off for their unbelief but remember this you stand by your faith in other words, you didn't get there because of some intelligence. You didn't get there because you were good. You didn't get there because God saw something worthy in you. You're there simply by a means of grace by which you got the gift of faith. So, don't be conceited. But fear instead. Because if God didn't spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Don't get the idea that Paul's saying you could lose your salvation. The idea there is... Listen, if that's your attitude and that's your ongoing attitude about your own salvation, that somehow you arrived at it and God somehow saw something worthy in you, maybe you need to check yourself because you're probably not saved. Behold the kindness and severity of God to those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness. If you continue in that kindness, 
You see, somebody who really understands the reality of where they were before God brought them into his home. God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. They're humble before God. They realize their place. They realize their position. They understand it was sheerly and merely the kindness of God that brought them in. They also, if they don't continue in their unbelief, they'll be grafted in. Why? Because God's able to do that again. Why? Because salvation is of God. Salvation is of God. Grafting in is of God. The reality is, if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted in contrary to nature... Put that phrase in your mind. Get that locked down. Underline it, circle it, whatever. Contrary to nature. It's not supposed to be like this. It doesn't happen like this in nature. In fact, some people, you'll read commentaries and say, Paul didn't even know what he was talking about here because wild olive trees weren't grafted into natural olive trees in Palestine. It was the other way around. In order to stimulate growth in a wild olive tree, they would take a natural branch, graft it into the wild olive tree so that it would stimulate growth in the wild olive tree. Yes, that's true. That was the normal thing. But oftentimes they would do this because it caused the natural olive tree to begin to flow juices into the wild so that it would receive something. It was an unnatural practice, but it happened. And here you're seeing that reality. We were grafted in unnaturally. Not because God said, I just don't like my people anymore. How much more then shall these natural branches be grafted in to their own olive tree? See, I trust we can hear the arrogance in the words recorded in verse 19. Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Those are arrogant words. The implication of those words is that the Jews were set aside by God in totality and finality because of some deficiency. Because in and of themselves, they had some deficiency. If that, in other words, if that deficiency wasn't there, they would have made a different choice. But I was included because I don't have that deficiency. God chose me because that deficiency wasn't found in me. But notice why they were set aside. They were broken off for unbelief. They were outside because they reject the gospel. Yeah, it's true they were set aside, but not because of deficiency. They were set aside simply because of unbelief. And we were brought in because we were better. No. Because somehow we were intellectually more smart and we just picked up the the Word of God one day and finally got it. No. Because we're a superior choice to them. No, not at all. We were simply brought in because of mercy, because of grace. By faith, as Ephesians 2 says, faith was a gift of God. That's why we were brought in. And here's here's the mind-blowing reality of that transaction. Paul is using the grafting in terminology to show that that has happened contrary to the norm. I emphasize it already. The unnatural into the natural. The natural into the natural. So once again, we see here again, it's the root that supports us, not vice versa. So you see, Paul 
says there's no room for spiritual pride when it comes to your salvation. Don't be conceited about it as if it were you who made it happen. No. He says instead of conceit, instead of spiritual pride, you fear. You have that reverential awe for God. You stand before God who can easily remove you. The sovereign God. Paul is highlighting the sovereignty of God in the whole transaction and the sovereignty of God to save those whom he chooses to save. It is not because of us. Fear God. Because if he didn't spare the Jews who disbelieved, he's not going to spare you if you reject that very same truth. Why? Because it's disbelief that separates us. You know why people go to hell today who have heard the gospel? You know why they walk into hell? Because they reject it. They don't believe it. It's rejection of the gospel that executes the condemnation that we all deserve. So don't get the idea that Paul is intimating that you can lose your salvation. He's not. His entire intent is simply that we might have a right view of Israel and their place with God. That's his intent. I want you to think rightly about Israel. And he desires that we understand that we are in the kingdom simply by God's choice. Not us at all. It's simply because of God's choice. But God's choice does not imply that he's finished with Israel. The choice of God to save the Gentile has nothing to do with the reality of whether he is done with Israel or not. He is not done with Israel at all because he said he's not. In fact, it shows the exact opposite here in words, the words of Paul. It's the root that supports us, not vice versa. And so Paul says we can see the kindness and severity of God in all of that transaction in verses 22 to 24. You see the severity of God with those who fell. In other words, they've rejected. They've, they've rejected the gospel. God allowed that to bring the gospel to us. It's kindness. And then they, if they repent of their unbelief, they can be brought back in. Because the natural to the natural is nothing to God. So how do we remain humble concerning our salvation? How do we as Gentile believers remain humble in this way? First, remember that you are brought in by grace. We're brought into the kingdom by the grace of God. It's the root that supports us, not vice versa. And secondly, remember that your salvation is not because you're good, but simply because of God's gift to you. Faith. And then there's a third thing. This is why I said we could get through this. This is the third. Remember that God will save his chosen Israel because his promise is irrevocable. God will save his chosen Israel because his promise is irrevocable. For I don't want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. This is an Israelite, Paul, who had proclaimed his Israel. Israel likeness, if I can make up that word, to the Gentile believers before when he said, surely God isn't done with Israel in totality. I'm an Israelite. How could that be? And here he's saying, I don't want you brethren. Paul has now put himself 
and us together, one family. I don't want you to be, brethren, misinformed of this mystery. This mystery that, that people seem to be so mystified still today by. This idea that, the, that God has temporarily set aside Israel. That we are now in what is known as the time of the Gentiles. That's why we call it that from verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own estimation. Lest you be wise about yourself, your own salvation, and why you're in the kingdom. A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. When is God going to continue to, to draw His own people back and to return to Israel to reign for a thousand years in the millennial kingdom? Guess when He's going to do that? When all the Gentiles have been brought in. Which Gentiles? All the Gentiles He's chosen to save. How many is that? I don't know. When is that going to happen? I don't know. But I know it's going to happen just like it says. And it's a partial hardening. In other words, some are rejecting. Some are going to be saved. And thus all Israel will be saved. He doesn't mean universal salvation for every Jew that has ever lived. That's not what he's saying. He's saying as a nation, they're going to be brought back. The world one day is going to look to Israel for leadership when Christ is ruling on the throne there. That doesn't mean all the Jews will be saved in Israel, but all Israel will be saved from the persecution, the rejection, and all that from the gospel. They will be hearing the truth all the time because God has promised it that way. The deliverer is going to come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob, that is from Israel, and this is my covenant with them. I will take away their sins. Quoting Isaiah 59, promise through the prophet to Israel. This is the idea and the reality that God's promise is irrevocable. It's almost unfathomable that Paul has to say that. From the standpoint of the gospel in verse 28, they're enemies for your sake. In other words, they're outside because the gospel needed to get to you. And that was God's way of bringing the gospel to you. But from the standpoint of choice, the standpoint of election, they are beloved. Because of the fathers, because the promise of God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God's promise and gifts are irrevocable. They will never be removed. Israel as a nation has never applied, never assumed the land promise, the, the promise of a people, the rulership as God had promised way back in the Old Testament. And one day they will and Christ will be their king on the throne. So as we look at this final section, we have to understand all Israel... The term, all Israel will be saved, is not speaking of universal salvation of every Jew. This is why what confuses some people and why they want to interject the word church there. That the church is the new Israel because the church is going to be God's people. And God saves everybody within the church in a universal sense who's part of the church is saved. So they interject all this theological presuppositionalism into the text. He's not speaking of eternal, universal salvation of the church or of every Jew. That can't be so. Why? Because of the doctrine we already talked about before, the doctrine of the remnant. There's only going to be a remnant saved. Only some will be spiritually saved. But nationally and in a physical way, Israel will be saved because of the promise that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's what you get there in verse 25 to 27 clearly see that Paul quotes from Isaiah 59 the promises of God through the prophet Isaiah so 
So the deliverer will come, Jesus Christ, and upon his return he will rule in the earth for a thousand years. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob, that is from Israel, and he will rule in righteousness. And then beginning in verse 28 to verse 32, you have why that's going to happen. Why is that going to happen? Verse 29 really sums it up. Because the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. So it explains in practical terms. It all gets summed up really in verse 32. For God has shut up all in disobedience. So that he might show mercy to all. See we were disobedient to God verse 30. But now we've been shown mercy. Because of their disobedience, God sent the gospel to us. That was an act of mercy on God's part that we might hear the gospel and be saved. And God has shut us up, our disobedience up, by showing us mercy. And so the Jew also, in order that because of the mercy that he showed to us, they may also be shown mercy. Remember, in order that they might be made jealous. Remember that language before? We're being used in the plan of God by God's great reality. Verse 11, they stumbled not as to fall, but their transgression of salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. That's what Paul is saying here. He's referring back to that idea. The mercy that has come to us as Gentiles is there in order to show them that they need mercy too. That's why Paul says, for God has shut up all in disobedience. So that he might show mercy to all. No one gets saved without God's mercy. So that's the driving force of this. What's the principle governing God's actions with the Jews now? What is the driving principle in God's actions with the Jews? It's verse 28. From the standpoint of the gospel, they're enemies. But from the standpoint of God's choice they're beloved notice the contrast enemies and beloved it regards to the gospel there's one thing true of the Jews they're enemies but in regards to election in regards to God's choice there's a whole nother thing true of the Jew they're beloved they're currently regarded as enemies that doesn't mean they are enemies they're regarded by God as enemies they aren't enemies of the gospel he says they're regarded as enemies that's the perspective of God currently with the Jews he regards them as enemies why for our sake God's regarding his own children his own chosen as enemies for our sake so that he could show mercy to us and once again, we are face to face with the reality of God's grace. God's grace to save us. Save us who are outside. Bring us in. God has chosen to regard his own people as enemies of the gospel so that you and I would be saved by the gospel. <laughs> and then notice, secondly, notice what he says. Here, here's part of the reason we cannot write off Israel. Here's part of the reason we can't say that God is done with Israel in finality or totality. Why it's arrogant, conceited, and unwise to do so. Because they're regarded as beloved for the Father's sake. How could God write them off and Paul write these words? 
They are beloved for the Father's sake. Because of the promise made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the national Jew is regarded as beloved by God. It's not that they are inherently lovable or they inherently lovely, but simply because God has chosen to love that they are considered beloved. That's what Paul says. And why are they being considered that way? Verse 29, because the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. So if you want to understand the current state of affairs that to bring, uh, uh, that, that the Jews have as a whole, the current state of affairs for the Jewish people as a nation, this is the explanation. God has set them aside so that we might receive the gospel. There, there's coming a day when they will be seen as the people of God. Not just this Middle Eastern flying the ointment nation that everybody wants to get rid of. God is regarding them as enemies, and He has used that to bring salvation to us who are non Jews. That's a wonderful truth for us to know. And as regards to the economy of God and the gospel, they are being regarded currently as enemies so that we, the non Jew, might hear and believe the gospel unto salvation. That's wonderful truth. But if you look at them from the standpoint of God's election, then those who are being regarded as enemies now are also at the same time beloved for the Father's sake. So they're being regarded as enemies now, but they're still beloved. And that's the mystery that Paul's speaking about in verse 25. I don't want you to be uninformed of this mystery. That's the mystery. The Jew currently being regarded as enemy in spite of the fact that God has elected to save some. Why? Because God's promise to Israel. It wasn't just a spiritual promise only for the elect. No, the promise was to the nation. Even though spiritually, not all are going to be saved eternally. In other words, there's physical aspects of God's promise that are for all Israel, while eternal salvation is only for the remnant. So their belovedness is for the Father's sake. The patriarchs are the root. The patriarchs are the lump, the first fruits of Israel. God chose them so that out of them he might produce a people, the people of God. Remember, Paul linked all of that together back in chapter 9. Do you remember that? Remember what Paul said, verse 4 and 5? Who are Israelites to whom belong the adoption as sons, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple services, the promises, who are the fathers and from whom is Christ according to the flesh, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. Paul links it all together right there. And he shows just who Israel is. So Paul isn't simply reminding us of God's revelation that the fathers were chosen by God and that he set them there as a root and the first fruits of this nation. Verse 29 says he's reminding us that the gifts and calling of God are completely irrevocable. You cannot write off Israel. It's absolute. And so the implication is to say that we are the new Israel 
to buy off in this idea of replacement theology that somehow the church is the new Israel or that God is completely finished with Israel. Paul says that's the height of Christian arrogance. That's to lack wisdom of the truth. If that were so, then God is not God. If God wrote off Israel, then God is not God because he made a promise. He made a promise that he only according to his own character, could fulfill and would fulfill. It was a unilateral promise. It was based upon him alone. And therefore, for him not to fulfill it would be for him to lie. And that would make him not God at all. And therefore, to say that we are God's children by salvation because of something in us that God saved us, but God lied to Israel, then we have a false God. And we're not saved either. And so... Finally, we hear again the final explanation of God's working with us and with them in verses 30 to 32. For God has shut up all in disobedience that he might show mercy to all. You see, you were once disobedient to God, but now you have been shown mercy because of their disobedience. So these also have now have been disobedient in order that because of mercy shown to you, they may now be shown mercy. God wants everybody to see their same position before him, Jew or Gentile, we're all guilty. So here's the whole argument in a nutshell. The promise of God to Israel remains and is sure. That's the argument in a nutshell. Don't write off Israel. Don't be arrogant about yourself. Don't write off Israel. The disobedience is only part-time. God has not cast away His people in totality or in finality. The answer to that question when people ask is absolutely not. They are still going to be around. The day is coming when the promise of the Old Testament will be literally fulfilled with national Israel. Years ago when I was candidating for a church in Ohio... The church had a title name, and I was curious about that title name because inherently in that title name, the idea is that national Israel has been set aside. The church is a new Israel. And so when I was talking with them, that was the only question I asked them out of my mouth, the first thing when I talked to them. What do you believe about national Israel? Because that was going to tell me a lot about what they thought about their own salvation and how they looked at the other people and how they looked at where they got their salvation and where it came from and their whole view of Romans 9 through 11. Israel will continue. Jesus will reign in Jerusalem and God will save his remnant. And we Gentiles, we are part of it. We are part of the spiritual blessings that come through that simply because God loves to show mercy to the undeserving. That's it. We've heard the gospel because the Jews have rejected it. And because of that mercy shown to us by God, they will be shown mercy by our loving and gracious wonderful that Paul ends this chapter with such a great doxology of praise verses 33 to 36 oh the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God that statement ought to shock us because it it, it goes so against our own intellectual understanding in other words it's basically saying exactly what Isaiah says God is not like you he didn't do it like you would have planned it. 
Because here's what we say. Oh, you don't believe the gospel? Good, get out of here. I'm better than you. Oh, the wisdom of God, the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments, unfathomable His ways. You can't even, you can't even comprehend the depth of what God has done and is doing in His plan of redemption. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who became His counselor? Did any one of us? Did He come down and ask us, Hey, what do you think I should do? How about my people Israel? Should I set them aside or not? He didn't ask us any of that. We didn't give him any counsel. Who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? Who of us does God owe anything? That's the idea. So Paul says, oh, the wisdom and knowledge of God. For from him, that's the origin. Through him, that's the middle of it. And to him, that's the finality. All are things. All are all things. Why? Because he deserves all the glory to him be glory forever God will give his glory to no one he will let no one stand in his place the reality is that God receives all the glory and the wisdom and plan and knowledge of his own and man we just stand back and go wow I can't believe God will allow me to be a part of it that's incredible is God done with Israel no way why are we in because of God's mercy What's the future look like? Christ is going to return and Israel is going to have a thousand years where Christ rules on the earth. What the earth will be like then is, is just amazing to us because Christ is going to rule in a world where sin still affects and yet he will rule with righteousness. People will get saved, primarily Jews. Gentiles will be getting saved then in partiality. But it will be the time of the Jews. Right now it's the time of the Gentiles. And when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then all Israel will be saved. Why? Because God's promises are irrevocable. Well, we did it. See, now nobody can say, our pastor never does that. I did it. I did it. By God's grace, we did it. Well, let's praise God for what he's taught us. Father, we thank you this morning for it. Thank you for the joy of knowing these truths. Oh, there's details, Lord, that we could spend more time just uncovering and revel in. I trust all this has been profitable for our hearts to look at your overall plan and what Paul has been driving at the whole time and that we would understand that it's easy to be arrogant easy to be conceited, unwise in our own thinking when we think about your people. To put ourselves in the place of them and think that we have it all because just look at who we are. Lord, help us to not be like that. Thank you for crushing our pride where it shows itself in us, Lord, in those hidden places. Reveal it so that we wouldn't be prideful. Help us love the Jews. Help us love those who are unsaved so that we might share the gospel with them. Lord, and we trust that you will save those whom you've chosen to save to your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.